We're going to be over in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, to start. Someone rewrote the 23rd Psalm. And as we've been dealing with frustrations last week and this week, I thought this was, was good. The clock is my dictator. I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me into deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leads me in circles of frenzy for activity's sake. Even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it all done. For my ideal is with me. Deadlines and my need for approval, they drive me. They demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines. My in-basket overflows. Surely fatigue and time pressures shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell on the bounds of frustration forever. <laughs> oh boy. Isn't that terrible to have something else other than God at your head? Sometimes we can have some of these other things go on, but don't think that, that well, that's not me. Sure, you can fall into that. How many of you all know some of those things you've fell into? You can, you can feel some of that stuff going on. Mm. We can get overwhelmed. Well, last week we looked at situations and that are frustrating. Today we told you we're going to look at people that are frustrating. How many of you know that there are people in your life that frustrate you? You do not need anyone to tell you that. You know there are frustrating people in my life. I want to let you know just to start off, start this off with to set you free because, just because there are frustrating people in your life doesn't mean you've missed it. Just because you get frustrated with people does not mean you have missed it. Sometimes we get this idea that if I am not perfect in this area of frustration where I never become frustrated, I am missing God. And that is not true. Now, I put this in your, in your outline. I mess with this a whole mess of times trying to... You know, I was praying this morning and, this, and, and something real similar to this came up. And I was just trying to you know, press in. All right, how, we, how do we say this simply so we can get a hold of it? But God, godly word patterns constitute my life principles. Godly, actually I think I just shortened it, godly patterns constitute my life principles. There are patterns in the Word of God about God and they constitute, they make up, they formulate life principles. Godly patterns constitute life principles. There are patterns of God in the Word of, in the word of God. We need to understand what they are. And from them, we need to derive life principles. Principles that order our life. We're going to see some here in this one. We're going to take a look at God. How many of you all know God has gotten frustrated with people? If God gets frustrated with people, why are you condemning yourself for getting frustrated with people? I thought I'd get at least one amen on that one. Turn over to Numbers chapter 14 if you haven't already done so. Look at verse... Um, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me and how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Does this sound like God is frustrated? If God has gotten frustrated, why are we so upset when we do? And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it, for, for by your might you brought these people up from among, from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, 
they have heard that you, Lord, are among these people and that you, Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which He swore to give them. Therefore, He killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But He by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Perhaps the iniquity of these people, I'm sorry, pardon the iniquity of these people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory in the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these, what? Ten times. And have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those reject me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now we know that Joshua was in that group too. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. So God is frustrated. God was ready to do something. Moses appealed to his mercy side and God relented. But he has said something here that Israel had tested him these ten times. And I don't know that we've ever done so, so I thought we'd do so real quickly here. Let's take a look at the ten times in which Israel tested them. And I wrote the ten times down in here. And I gave you the scripture references so you can go back and study them more fully later on because they do merit more study. Again, godly patterns constitute life principles. We got to see the pattern that God follows. And the more we understand about his pattern, how he follows, the more I'm going to be able to, to be like him and to deal with frustrating people in that way. Well, <clears throat> the first time that they tested him was in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 11. They came, God led them up to a spot in the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army decided, you know what, we're, we're going to go after him. Pharaoh decided he was going to go after him, and so they pursued him. Let's take a look at the, a couple of the verses here. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, because... No, I'm sorry. Then, then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians then we should die in the wilderness. That's a test. They're testing with God. They're testing God on, on what He's going to do here. Now, how does God deal with them? Pretty clearly, I mean, it, it, does He rebuke their unbelief? Do you remember the story? He doesn't at all. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So, I mean, the, the Lord recognized, later on in the verses you'll see, the Lord recognized their doubt and unbelief, and He was obviously displeased anytime He sees doubt and unbelief. But He really doesn't do anything to them, does He? 
He just says, you know, stand back. I'm going to take care of this one for you. And so they stood back and the Lord took care of it for them. And they, they went through this Red Sea on dry ground. And after they get across, the Lord closes it all in on the Egyptian army and they a whole Egyptian army died. That's pretty good. I think from that point on, most of us would say, I will never doubt God again. Because that is a pretty remarkable thing. I don't think any of us can ever really imagine this to be seeing an entire, a huge river, whole, part, whole body of water, just parted. Inst- I mean, you're just standing there and whew, it just goes apart and you walk around, you walked out there on dry ground. What was muddy is dry. And you just walk on over and walking on through. Can you imagine walking on through and seeing this high wall of water? When you get into it, it actually says the Word of God had to become solidified or frozen or something of, of that nature. And so they may have even reached out and, and touched it. And it wasn't fragile. It didn't fall on them. <laughs> and they walked on through and just looking at that. How many of you would not have wanted to go through? How many of you are saying, well, it's up there now, but I'm not sure how long this is going to stay there. <laughs> but they all walked on through and they all get on, get on through. And then after they get on through, they see it all collapse upon the earth. That is... Astounding. Astounding that you can go through that. Well, then we get over to Exodus chapter 15 and they come up and there is some water here at Mara, but it's not good water. They call it bitter water. And they immediately say, just as the Lord delivered us from the army of the Egyptians at the Red Sea, the Lord will deliver us here. That's not what they said. What did they say? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that we should die here? And they have bitter water at, at Marah. And, and God doesn't really rebuke them for this. I mean, again, there's displeasure, but He doesn't come out and really deal with them at all with the, the thing. And He says to Moses, says, go get that tree, throw it in. The waters will be good and they can drink. And He threw it in the water and the waters became good and they began to drink. Then in the next chapter, see the first story was in Exodus 14. The second story is in Exodus 15. The next story is Exodus 16. We aren't getting very far, are we? And they come to a point, I guess they had left Egypt with some food and, you know, they had some Cheerios and, uh, you know, some granola bars and things. But after a while, you know, the Cheerios and the granola bars runs out and you need some other food to replace it with. And there's no place to go and buy the Cheerios and the granola bars or whatever else that you want to get. So they have no food. They're in the wilderness. And so they come to the Lord. You know, we didn't have any water. We were going to be wiped out by the Egyptians. He came through on both of those for us. And they come and they say, Has the Lord brought us out here to kill us? There's no food. They actually say they're, they're craving meat and, and food. But uh, God just pretty, pretty much deals with the manna at this point. And manna comes and, and He gives the instructions. This is how it's going to go. In verse 4, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. But again, God does not really do anything harsh to them. There's no real strong disciplinary action. He's just saying, uh, you know, let's, just, let's go on here. We'll take care of the food situation. We'll bring bread and rain it from heaven. Now, I mean, one of these miracles would just do you for the rest of your life, wouldn't it? Any one of these miracles? Parting of the Red Sea... Bitter water, I mean, instantly made good. Bread from heaven. I mean, we could be set for life. 
This doesn't last them even a chapter. So he gives them instructions about how to how to collect this. And he says, of course, six days you're going to collect it. Six days the manna is going to fall. The seventh day is the day of rest. You're not going to go out there and collect it. Each day you collect exactly what you need. If you leave any held over until the next day, it will spoil. And the next morning you go out and collect more. So every morning you collect it out. Now it would last from the morning to the afternoon and from the afternoon to the evening, but it wouldn't last from the evening to the breakfast time. And if you're a Keith Green fan, Keith Green wrote a really nice song about manna, about all the different things you can make with manna, you know, banana bread. <laughs> he just he has a whole song there. He came up with a whole mess of stuff. I don't remember them all, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Because you really got to think about how many different ways can you prepare this. So it doesn't always taste the same, but they had, they had manna coming out there. So, of course, the children of Israel, after three times, they would obey the word of the Lord, right? No, they first off went on out there and even though the stuff's going to fall tomorrow, they gathered more than they needed. And the Lord said, if you keep more than you need for the next day, it's going to stink. It's going to be bad. So it was real obvious who was disobedient. If you walked on by and you smelled a stench coming out of someone's house, ah, disobedient one right here. This is the one. If they all got up and started hollering, oh, it smells, oh, it's awful. Oh, you kept on to something. I didn't. <laughs> And I'm sure that the seventh day wasn't early on. The first day, they probably hit on the, you know, the second or third day or whatever it was. And so they had a couple of days in succession. And they finally got in line with the obedience there. Don't keep more than you needed. Now they didn't do it because they wanted to obey God. They did it because it stunk. That's why they did it. I mean, how many of y'all know when your kids, especially boys, boys, it's tough to get boys to take a shower. On a regular basis, take a bath, you know, when they're younger, take a shower later on. You know, they just, of course, we're close to the dirt, so it's easier for us to, to, we learned about that on the Wednesday before. But the, the surefire way to get boys to, to want to get showers more often is, get them interested in girls. I mean, you, moms, you can yell at them all that you want to, and it's, you're just fighting in there. But if they got a girl they want to impress, they're in the shower right off the bat. No problem. I'll get that shower. You don't have to tell them. They're, they may shower twice a day. They want to make sure they don't stink for that girl. So, you know, they're, they're the best thing to, to have in there. They're not getting the showers now because they're being obedient to you as the mom. They're getting the shower because it benefits them. <laughs> so they're obeying here because it benefits them. Not because, you know, we, we should do it God's way. So we get to the sixth day, they collect. The seventh day, they expect to go out there. Now, they've gotten in line with the obedience now. Now we're throwing it all out the night before and getting it the, the following morning. So the sixth day, they, they collect it, but they don't collect twice as much. There's people who don't collect twice as much because it smelled the last time I did it. I'm not going to trust God that on the sixth day, I only collect, I collect twice what I need because I know what happened before. So I'm going to get rid of all that I have so it doesn't smell up the house again. I'm not embarrassed by all the neighbors. And so they get throw it all out, not because of obedience to God, but because it stunk. And when they did that, they came on out in the seventh day. The Word of God tells us, go back to the story. It tells us they went on out looking for it just like the other days, but it was the seventh day. It was the Sabbath. There was no manna on the ground. So they went hungry. And you can't go to your neighbor and borrow stuff because the neighbor collected what they were supposed to, which is twice what they have, so they have enough to get them through the day. So guess what? You're fasting today. 
Now, on this one, God kind of dealt with them a little bit. They kind of, they got a little, you know, little slap on the wrist, a little bit. You know, they had to smell. They had to go without food. But God didn't really do anything more than that. That was it. But if you're God, how many of you are getting frustrated? I parted the Red Sea and you still don't want to obey me? I rained manna from heaven and you still don't want to obey me? So they get to Rephidim and there's no water there. Not bad water. There is no water there. And so they bring water out of a rock. And they murmur and complain again. Has God brought us all the way out here because there's not enough graves in Egypt? Has God brought us out here because He wants to kill us? And Moses goes before God and says, just take him over to the rock, hit the rock, and it'll bring out some water. And they did it. But how many of you are getting frustrated with this? If you're God, are you not getting frustrated? And then they come over to Mount Sinai. And Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, among other things. But you know we know the Ten Commandments. He comes down with them on tablets. And, and God suddenly brings the meeting to, a, to an abrupt halt. You know, 40 days. You would think that to be a, a long meeting, but apparently it wasn't for God. God was going to continue to go on. But all of a sudden, He brings it to an abrupt stop and He says, get down off this mountain. Get down. The people have gone into rebellion. Get on down there and take care of them people. And so Moses has to intercede for them because God is ready to wipe them all out. I'm going to wipe every one of them out. I'm going to get rid of the whole bunch of them. Is God frustrated? And Moses intercedes for, for them and he gets God to relent, appeals to the, to the judgment, uh, to the mercy side of God again. And so then Moses comes down the mountain and what does he see? All this stuff going on. And what does Moses do? He gets frustrated and breaks the tablets. <laughs> Just smashes the tablets there. He's frustrated too. And he gets on down there and he's, he uh, makes them drink the gold. From the, they melted it into the gold. You don't want that gold? You want to make it into this? I'm going to crush it all up, put it into some kind of a mixture and make them drink it. I have no idea how that would, would work, but... Ugh. That's what they did. And then they come over to... We get through quite a few chapters, but it's only, the only reason we get through a whole lot of chapters is simply because there's a whole lot of commandments that are given in those chapters, things that came out of Mount Sinai. And then we come on up to, to, to Barath. And... It doesn't really tell us a whole lot of what went on. It just says the people started complaining and God says, that's it. I'm done with, I'm done with this one. He got started uh, to um, having fire come down and burn up people and things were going on. It was not pretty. And it just, it's just three verses. Yeah, three verses that deal with it and it's pretty much over. And the people complained and God came after them and, and people died. And then we went on. But apparently, God is not just being frustrated now and being appeased by things. He is taking it out on them. He is punishing them. He is trying to get them out of this area of disobedience. You would think that would hold them over for a while. I mean, people are dying. Wouldn't you think that would work for a little while? It didn't even work for a chapter. The next verse, verse 4. We don't know what they were complaining about again in verses 1, 2, and 3. But in verse 4, they complain again. We have no meat. We're getting tired of all this manna. I know God provides it free of charge. It comes from the sky. It falls on down. It's heavenly food. It's absolutely wonderful. But we're tired of it. We want some meat we can sink our teeth into. Now, many of us can appreciate the love of meat. <laughs> but God is not so much dis displeased with their love of meat 
as he is with the way that they come about it. Complaining, all we have is this yucky manna, this, oh, this stuff. I mean, God was bring, this is a gift from God. He provided it for all these millions of people. Food. Every day. I mean, you grew up, your parents sometimes look, we got two, three, four kids to feed, that was a lot. He's got two, three million. He's got a lot of people to feed every day. He's got to manufacture enough manna to fall down on this area to feed these two, three million people, whatever number they're, they're up to. That is a lot. And apparently there's no real appreciation for that. They begin to murmur, we want some meat. So God sends quail, makes this big wind blow, and it brings all these quails on over. And the quail come in and they can't fly and they're on the ground. They go out there and they get them. And they're so hungry for meat, they just eat these things really fast and dig right into them. And God sees this gluttony and just eating all these, these things the way they are. And He just gets mad. He starts messing with them. And people are dying again. And then Moses has to go out and intercede for them. And he does. And it stops it. But um, they're not learning a whole lot. Then we come over here to the final one. Final area. In Numbers chapter 13. When we read in Numbers chapter 13, it just seems like God says, go ahead and send some spies out. One man from each tribe. And if we look at that, it seems to be pretty good. Alright, well, we send that one man from each tribe. God commanded him to do that, but apparently that's not exactly what happened. And we are told of this later on. Turn over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 20. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God has given us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. And the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. And the plan pleased me, meaning Moses. So I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went into the mountains and came up to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, it is good. It is a good land which the Lord your God is giving us. So the plan here is not necessarily God's plan. It was their plan. And Moses went along with it, but it was not God's plan. They did it because they were doubting the blessings of God. Whether this was really a good land, whether they could actually possess this land. Let's send some people on down there and check this thing on out. And so that was the ninth time. And then we come to the tenth time. And that's when the spies came back and the spies say, uh, nope, it's a great land. Everything that God said about it is true, but there's giants in the land. We're not going to be able to take care of that. Verse 26, Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are greater and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. And then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, He will fight for you according to all He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And He continues to go on. You can go on through here and, and uh, check out all this, but they didn't go 
they wouldn't they want to go and do what God had said. And so they said, we're not going to go up. We're going to pick a new leader and our new leader is going to take us back. We're going to go back to Egypt. And God said, over in the book of Numbers, God says, that's it. We are done. I'm done with a whole bunch of you. I'm tired of your rebellion. I'm tired of your doubt and unbelief. This is ten times that you have tested me. And Moses interceded again for them. And God said, I will only wipe out those that are over the fighting age. Twenty and under, I think it was, that, uh, that they would be preserved and they could go on into the land. We're going to have you wander for 40 years until we wipe out all of that generation. <laughs> so they wandered and wandered and wandered. This is the way they, that God had brought it about. So God eventually got tired of their, their stuff and dealt with them very harshly. Just because you deal with people harshly doesn't mean that you miss God. Just because that you want to deal with people harshly doesn't mean that you have missed God. Did not God want to to deal harshly with Israel but didn't carry it out? Did not God eventually deal harshly with Israel? So we see all these things that came about. These are similar things that we have faced. You put this in your outline. Sometimes God overlooks their disbelief. Other times He deals with it. The pattern we see from God is that sometimes He overlooks problems. He just overlooks it. He holds knowledge. I see that's there. But we're not going to deal with that today. I'll bet you've probably used this sometimes with your own kids. If you've done any, uh, read any of the parenting magazines or parenting books and things that are out there, they will tell you that with your kids, make sure you pick your battles. Because if you start a battle, you better finish it. Don't start a battle you're not prepared to finish. That, with kids, that's bad news. If you haven't had any kids yet, when you get them, remember... Don't start a battle you are not willing to finish. If you let your kids finish it, they won. And it's not good to have them win on a regular basis, especially if you want, go over to Walmart, walk around there a little while, you will see some parents who have lost battles. You all know what I'm talking about there, don't you? No, if you're going to pick a battle, finish it. If you don't have time to finish it, then don't start it. It is okay sometimes to overlook some things. But if you get in there and deal with it and then finally give in, it ain't going to help you out. So God underst- understands this. And one thing, God does not start a battle He is not prepared to finish. He has talked about it sometimes. And sometimes, you know, husbands and wives will come together and they'll talk about it. And maybe the wife says, I'm ready to finish this battle. And maybe the husband says, I'm not. Or maybe it's the other way around, whatever it is. <laughs> but uh, you got to make sure that you are on board to finish the battle. So sometimes God overlooks their disbelief and other times He deals with it. So this is God's example. Before we pull much out of that, let's take a look at Jesus' example. Before Jesus began teaching and healing, John identified who the Pharisees were. And John and the Pharisees, or Jesus and the Pharisees there are at odds eventually, but not right off the bat. But before Jesus ever taught a word, before Jesus ever went out and ministered, before he did anything, John was the forerunner and John was going around preparing the way for Jesus to come and to do things. So it says in Matthew chapter 3, Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his, to his baptism, he said to, to them, Brought of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How does John identify the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Probably throw the scribes in there and all such things as that. He identifies them as a broad of vipers. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid 
to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will deal with some people. He will deal with them. But when he deals with them, it's done. He's, he's going to get in there. But, but John has identified the Sadducees, the Pharisees, before Jesus has ever started. This is real important for us to understand that. John identifies the Pharisees for the, the scoundrels that they are. But then Jesus starts his ministry. When Jesus starts his ministry, he teaches the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes as he teaches the other people. He does miracles in the presence of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes as he does with other people. He allows the power of God to minister to the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes in the same way that he would the other people. In the beginning. But have they not already been identified? By John. But this is what he, what he does. Now, when God deals with Israel at the Red Sea, had Israel been identified? They had 400 years. For 400 years, what had they done? Wandered away from God fallen into the idolatry of Egypt and complained and murmured about God. This is a pattern they had set up. But when God brings them out of Egypt, He gives them a clean slate and He's dealing with them like they're brand new. When Jesus deals with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, He deals with them with a clean slate and says everything is brand new, even though John has already identified them and through his ministry has already seen their problem. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? For up until this point, he was not speaking to them outside of... He was teaching them regular. He wasn't teaching them in in a, a roundabout way. He was teaching about them in a regular fashion. But now all of a sudden, in chapter 13, with the parable of the sower, he introduces a new way of teaching and he's teaching through parables. And the disciples came to him and said, why, do you, why are you doing this? Why are you teaching now in parables? So up till now, he's taught straight up. Straight out. Just whatever principle he wanted to teach, he taught it right out. But now he's giving them stories that illustrate the principles. He says, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So I tell you all the time, God is not a socialist. God does not ab- 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 agree with the idea, let's put everything in one pot and even it all out. God says there are some people who are going to excel and they should. And there are some people who are not going to excel and they shouldn't. That's how God looks, looks at it. So be faithful. You're, whether you succeed or fail in God's eyes, of course it's different from everybody else's eyes that we see around us. You know, men's eyes are are different. But as far as God's eyes are concerned, what succeeds or fails primarily is faithfulness, obedience to His Word, staying in the area of faith, not doubt. These are the things that cause you to excel with God. 
And when you have, more will be given. And so that's what he's saying here. Therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. So really the purpose of him teaching in parables is so that people like the Pharisees, Sadducees and scribes would not understand it. That's his purpose. I mean, he says that pretty clearly. Isn't it? I'm going to make sure that you guys don't get this. Because in order to get this, you have to pursue after the truth. You have to want the truth. And you guys don't, so I'm not going to give it to you. If he gave it to them, they'd be responsible for it. So it's actually mercy that he doesn't. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears. Now this is this people. This is not just talking about the Pharisees, Sadducees. There are a number of people like the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes in the nation of Israel who have grown dull. And he's teaching around them as well as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and such. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Then he goes on and explains the parable to them. He does not want the disciples not to get these things, so he explains it to them. But in the presence of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and others that are like that, he will only teach them in the parables, and they have to pull the truth out from there. So at first Jesus teaches them, but then he teaches around them. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, first off, he ministered around them. In Matthew chapter 9, we have the time when the uh, paralytic was let down on the roof. And right there in the meeting were Pharisees and Sadducees and apparently they were excited about the meeting. They were front and center. They were looking forward to the meeting and then this man is lower down and they're still excited about this. And it even says, we've covered it before, it says in the Word of God that the presence of God was present to heal all. When that meeting started, the the power of God was present to heal all. And they lowered it down and Jesus messed it all up. And He says to the paralytic, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. And immediately the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were there, who were initially excited about the meeting, suddenly turns and says, who is this man that he forgives sins? And Jesus looks at them and says, what? You surprised at this? You don't think the, man, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins? Well, to prove to you that that is, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that what I'm saying is right, he said to the man, arise, take up your bed and walk. And the man arose, took up his bed and walked. And he walked right out of the meeting. I think I would stay in the meeting. But that's what he was uh, told to do, so he got up and he, he left. And from that point on, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they got upset. And they pretty much, their unbelief shut down the meeting because the power of God was present to heal. How many? All. And how many got healed? One. One. So it didn't quite come to the place that it needed to be at. And we see the problem there. But initially, he's ministering around them. He has no problem with that. But then later on, we see that there is a problem. He's later in conflict with them. Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. We see the conflict that rises up. In verse... uh, 
Verse 9, Now when he had departed from there, he went into the synagogue, and behold, there was a man who was, had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. So see, we're already starting to see some things begin to come up here, even in chapter 12. What man is there among you who has one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it, and, and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And then in chapter 13 is where he switches over, and he's no longer teaching. This way, he's teaching in parables. So we see that initially, even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been identified as people who can frustrate the purpose of the gospel, Jesus dealt with them as clean slates. And they once again established their pattern. And then Jesus changed the way that he behaved around them. How many of you have people in your life that frustrate you? And you tend to change how you act around them? Anybody done that? Have you ever felt condemned for that? Oh, I shouldn't do that. Oh, this isn't right. I shouldn't change the way I am around these people. They're Christians. They're pe- I should be ministering to them. And you can get in guilt and condemnation about it. And yet, John changed the way he dealt with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Jesus changed the way he dealt with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. God changed the way that He dealt with Israel and yet we feel guilty because we do. Remember, godly patterns constitute life principles. When we see a pattern with godly with God, we see a pattern with Jesus, we need to understand there's principles here to be brought, brought out. i got to follow the principles. Somehow we got this principle in there that we got to deal with all people equally. Right? How many of you ever have known that? Well, I gotta treat everybody equal. Gotta treat everybody the same. You can't treat everybody the same. You gotta, who are, I mean, there are some people that are hostile to the gospel. Can you treat a person who's hostile to the gospel the same way you can to someone who hungers after the word of God? No, you can't do that. Can you treat someone who is against the anointing of God the same way that you treat someone who is pursuing the anointing of God? Who wants the anointing of God to come into their life and, and minister healing to them? You've got to change the way that you deal with them. Can you deal with one person who loves the Word of God the same way you do with one who hates it? You've got to change the way that you deal with them. You cannot deal with all people equally. You've got to let people identify themselves, find out where they are, but give them all a clean slate to start off with. I think that's one of the most important things to learn from Jesus here is this. Even though John had already identified these guys as to who they were and where they went, Jesus gave them a clean slate to deal with. But they proved out that they were the same people with Jesus that they were with John. And then Jesus taught around them and He would even minister in conflict with them. But He would still minister to the people. Can you see that? Matthew chapter 16. Jesus pulls the disciples aside and eventually He warns them of the falseness of the leaders. He says, Beware of the uh, leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of it. Now they went off on this whole discussion as to what he meant. You know, it's because we didn't bring any bread and all that. But Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about their teaching. I'm, he's saying, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. Beware of it. He's warning them, don't just accept this teaching. Is that dealing with all people equally? He is singling certain people out, isn't he? He's saying, these guys, you be careful what they're teaching. You beware of it. It's leaven. It wants to get in there and infect you. Don't let it. 
So he, he warns about their falseness. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. We're staying mostly in the book of Matthew, even though you can go other places and see these things as well, just so that you can follow the timeline a bit easier. But Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in, in his talk. What was their purpose? How they might entangle him in his talk. Their purpose is not to bring the truth out for the people. It is to entangle them in their talk. Folks, people's purposes will reveal themselves. Understand that. Their purposes will reveal themselves. Don't believe what people say about their purpose. Believe what their actions testify. The Pharisees says how they might entangle him. We're going to find out a way that we can get this guy caught up on a technicality. That was their purpose for going out. It's not to seek after truth. It's not saying that Jesus has the truth. It's not any of that stuff at all. It, this is one of the reasons why, folks, I keep warning you about things like healthcare and other things the government is doing. The purpose is clear. How many of you all have, have uh, heard that you know, the government is always trying to say, you know, the Senate and the Senate leaders and the House leaders and all are all trying to say our purpose is to get all these people that are not, don't have health insurance covered, right? Isn't that what they say is the purpose? And the number was first 47 million people un- uncovered by insurance until people started pinpointing the fact that you're, co- you're, you're numbering illegal aliens and we don't think they ought to be on there. And overnight, the number dropped from 47 million to 30. 30 million people don't have health insurance. Out of that 30 million people, you know how many of them are, are 20, 22, 23, 24? Who have just said, I would rather have a nice car I would rather have nice things than have health insurance. I think I'm pretty healthy and I'm going to run the gamble that I'm going to do okay. I have the money, but I'd rather put the money into a brand new sports car, whatever, instead of getting something more economical and having health insurance. You know people like that? <laughs> I mean, that's where we, we were people like that. <laughs> and, and when you take those numbers out, the number goes from 30 million to 17 million people. We are willing to spend trillions of dollars to ensure 17 million people. Of those 17 million people, we already have three programs in the government right now that will cover most of those people. In fact, one of the programs, they already worked to expand it. So really, you can pretty much cover all of them. And if you have anyone who's not covered in that group, they show up at the ER, guess what happens? They get treated. You show up at the ER, whether you have money to pay or not, you get treated. So really, there is no crisis, but they've created a crisis because they want to attack the system. That's what they want to do. Now, if you if you really took the number, let's just say with 17 million is a, is a real number, could you in, take care of the problem of 17 million people without messing with your health insurance, without messing with your employee employer, without messing with insurance companies over, overall? Could you not do that for less money too than the trillions of dollars that they're talking about? You see, if you look into the, into the whole thing, what they're doing, it, it shows their purpose. Their purpose is different. Their purpose is not because they are concerned for the people. Our government, folks, overall, has been getting corrupt and corrupt and, for years. I mean, it's not just anything recent. It's, it's been going on for a long, long time. When we pass all those TARP funds, you know what the TARP thing stands for? Toxic Asset Relief 
program. You know what the money was supposed to go for? To buy off all those toxic assets that the banks had, you know, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all that that they funded. Do you know how much of that money went to doing that? Very little. After they passed it, the uh, the guy who's the charge of the uh, the money, I forget his name now, it'll come to me in a second, but he decided, you know what, we were better off to just give the banks money and that way they're freer to, to lend. And so the money didn't go out to buy the toxic ac- uh, assets and went out to just give them money. And by giving the money, they got control of the banks. So much control that the banks said, we don't, we don't, we want to give the money back. You have too much control over us. We didn't, we didn't want all this. And they said, no, you can't pay it back. We're going to ha- we're still going to have control over you. And so now they're talking that all the banks are doing better, which actually they haven't changed anything because they haven't bought up the toxic ac- ac- uh, assets. Can't say that word today. None of the banks have really changed. But now they said, we have all this extra money in here. We're going to use this extra money for a whole nother purpose. We're going to create jobs. We spent money, we okayed money we didn't have. We printed money to do what little we did and all the money that we didn't use, we're going to now just decide to use it for something else. They have not only done that with the TARP money, they've done it with a whole bunch of other money. The, uh, the stimulus money that was supposed to go in to fix stuff, 14% of the stimulus money has been spent. Most of it has gone to states to bail them out. It's, they're not doing what they said, but now that they, they'll say, well, we, we've seen the fix of the thing and so now we're going to use this money for something else. You, you can find the purpose, folks. You can find the purpose. You want to find out what the Senate leaders, you want to find out what the House leaders, what their real purpose is behind the things that they're writing? Just watch them. It's the same thing here. This is what Jesus is teaching. You can see the purpose. The purpose is going to come out. Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. But when they come out, they do not come out in a way that they're, they're threatening. They're, hard, they're, they're, they're real sincere. We've got some real questions here. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in, tr- in truth. Nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of man. Tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, do they believe the things they said here in the beginning? No. no. They're trying to predicate it. Folks, we got people all around that just predicate things. The media constantly is just predicating things. We, we tell you that all the time. You've got to be careful of these things. They're just coming out and they sound real nice and they get all this nice flowery speech out there. Tell us. you think it's lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They do not care of the answer. What they care about is, can we get him caught? Can we get him to say, well, you said this before, now you're saying this. Jesus perceived their wickedness. Yeah, They're looking nice, but he perceived their wickedness. He perceived the thing. He's not getting, he's dealing with them. He's not just overlooking this thing. He's going to deal with this frustrating thing. How many of you, this would frustrate you, people dealt with you this way? Come on, people have dealt with you that way, haven't they? They come up and they say, oh, you're so nice and you're so wise. And I just know that whatever it is that you say will be good. What do you think of this person and what they did? He says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. See, he doesn't try and let this 
go unexposed. He exposes it. You guys are hypocrites. You're just trying to test me. Give me some of your money. So they brought him a Daenerys. And he said to him, Whose image and description is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to him, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I mean, wow, what an answer, huh? We've all heard this one before. I mean, it's, it's something else. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Well, strike one. They didn't work. So the Sadducees come in. Same day, the Sadducees who were there, who say there was no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now therefore, were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scripture, nor the power of God. I'll tell you what, now he doesn't identify these guys the way he did the others, but he's saying this to who? Sadducees, spiritual leaders. The main difference between Sadducees and Pharisees is the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees don't. But they're both spiritual leaders. So he is saying to spiritual leaders, you are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's bad. If you're going to tell someone who is a spiritual leader, you don't know the Word of God and you don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. See, they didn't like the Sadducees. And they could almost side with Jesus just for the fact that he beat up on the Sadducees. That's almost worthwhile right there. But then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, so if you think there's any validity to this question, understand his purpose is cited right here. Testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law. I'm sorry, hang all the law and the prophets. That's where the, I mean, it's all hanging right on there. Which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest one? That sounds like a good question, doesn't it? He says, well, you're missing the you're missing the purpose here. That's going back and say all the law is important. So if you find that you can take care of this one commandment here, you'll find that you're going to take care of all of them. Actually, the two. So then he goes on. Jesus, um, while the while the Pharisees were gathered together, while they're all still there, they're all still in one spot. Jesus asked them, saying, "What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, the Messiah. Whose son is Messiah going to be?" And they said to him, the son of David. We've studied the scripture. We know what the scripture says. The son of David. He says to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. <laughs> so understand this. Jesus, first off, he fields three questions from these guys, one from the Pharisees, then from the Sadducees, then back to the Pharisees again. And now he goes on the offensive. He first just takes their questions and exposes who they are. But then he goes on the offensive against them. Have you ever wanted to go on the offensive against someone who was frustrating you? So did God. When God in the Old Testament sent the plague because Israel was rebelling, was he on the offensive? He's on the offensive. When he said, all right, all of you are going to die. I'm going to raise up your kids. They're going to go into the promised land. Was he on the offensive? When Jesus asked them this question, was he on the offensive? When Jesus got into situations and said, oh, we're on the Sabbath. Here's a person can be healed. Was he on the offensive? It is not wrong, folks, that people that are trying to frustrate the gospel to get in their face. Now, treat them nice at first. Give them the opportunity to expose who they are. And once they expose themselves as to who they are, and they're coming against you, they're coming against the gospel, they're coming against you furthering the word of God, stand against them. Listen to God. God is going to give you some ways to speak wisdom, some things to say, and you're going to be able to combat some of these things that they do. And just begin to pray about it. And sometimes as you're praying, preparing to get ready for the day, God is going to, in your spirit, bring up some things. Oh, wow. I don't know why I need that, but that's really good. And then later on that day or the next day, you're going to be in a situation. And, oh, this is offensive firepower. God has given me offensive firepower. Oh, this is good. That's what you need to do. So, we follow Jesus' example. We've got one more to take a look at. This one's real fast. Moses in Exodus chapter 32, we already looked at that. But he was uh, interceding for Israel, right? Was he frustrated with Israel? Yes, but he interceded for Israel, didn't he? But in Numbers chapter 11, we looked at that when we looked at uh, some of the things of the test that we're going through. That was where we had the complaining at Terebah and the murmuring for the meat. This really takes part in the, the part where they were murmuring for the meat. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? This is verse 11. That you have laid the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them? That you should say to me, carry them to your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which I swore to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to get to all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. Does Moses sound frustrated? He certainly does, doesn't he? Is he blaming God for things that he shouldn't be blaming God for? God, I mean, he's, he's saying, why have you afflicted your servant? Has God afflicted him? No, it's the people. Why have I not found favor in your sight? Has Moses not found favor in the sight of God? Of course he's found favor in the sight of God. But sometimes frustration can bring us to a point where we say things to God we don't really mean. They're not founded in any fact. We just begin to say them because we're frustrated. Moses was in that situation. Does God rebuke him for it? Not much. A little bit, but not much. He understands. Moses, I understand this is tough for you. Now, let's get together. Let's pull this, let's pull this thing together and take care of this. And they do. We're giving you a whole lot of scriptures here. I hope you spend the week going over some of these. 
He lets God be his defender in Numbers chapter 16. They all came against Moses and they said, you think too much of yourself. You take on all these jobs and you shouldn't be taking all these jobs. We're anointed too. And Moses just says, all right, let's let God pick. And God picked. And it wasn't so good for Korah. We see a number of things there in, in number 16. He let God his, be his defender. He let God be the one who preserved them in the judgment. But then in Numbers chapter... Uh, I punched out my, my hole there. What was that? Numbers 20 or 22, something like that? Yeah, my, I'm, mine's a little bit different than yours. My hole got punched out right over the reference there. But he struck the rock in anger. Why was he angry? He's frustrated. Because, folks, when he comes to this rock, you've got to understand this from Moses' standpoint, we have been here at this rock facing this situation with the previous generation. And we wandered through the wilderness. We faced all these trials. We faced all these tests. We faced all these situations. We've seen God come through. And we come all the way back to the very test that Israel failed before. And they fail it exactly the same way. That would be the equivalent of you raising up your son or your daughter 10, 15, 20 years and you see them do the same thing now that they did way back. And you begin to think, will they ever learn? Will they ever grow out of this? And frustration come on. Frustration came upon Moses. Because I think he's looking at this right now saying, I think I told you this one before. But I think Moses is looking at this saying right now. I've already wandered around with you guys for 40 years because you guys couldn't believe. I could believe, but you guys couldn't believe. And I've wandered around here and suffered with you all this time. And now we come back to the same test and I know that God's going to make you pass this test in order to get in and you're going to fail it again. And he's mad. He is frustrated. And it all just builds up. We're not just looking at a couple of weeks of frustration. At this point, when we face the same test again that we faced all those years ago, over 40 years ago, that he faced this test with them before, and they still failed it the same way, he is having 40 years of frustration come out all at once. And he takes that rod and he strikes that rock. And God still has the water come out. And God says to Moses, let's understand, I know how you feel. No, what what does God immediately say to Moses? That's it. You're not going in. Now, I'm convinced of this. I'll wait until I get up to heaven to find out. But I'm convinced of this. Moses is going, thank you. I'm convinced of it. I just know it. Because Moses is saying, we just went around the whole loop 40 years. And now they have failed the same test. I don't want to be the one to have to go around with them again. And when God says, that's it. You're not going to take them in. He says, thank you. Thank you. Take me home. I am done. And he passes the, the torch off to Joshua. I think gladly. <laughs> I think gladly. I think he's saying, here you go. <laughs> They're all yours. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> Haven't you ever wanted to do that? Haven't you gotten so frustrated and you worked and you worked and it hasn't gone anywhere and nothing has changed and nothing has changed and he said, hallelujah, I'm out. Glory to God. That's where Moses is at. And he struck the rock. Now here at the end, dealing with frustrating people Sometimes God's dealing with frustrated... Sometimes He dealt with the, the people that frustrated Him, right? Sometimes He did not. But in dealing with frustrating people, it angers them. 
It angers them. When you deal with frustrating people, or if you have frustrating people in your life, and you deal with them, does it not make them mad? They get mad at you. Because you're dealing with them. They get mad at you. If you let it go, do they get mad at you? No. But when you deal with frustrating people, it angers them. When you are not dealing with them, it often angers others. Doesn't it? Sometimes other people get mad at you because you didn't deal with it. But then you deal with it, you get them mad at you. So no matter what, you're going to have somebody mad at you. (laughs) But perceiving and doing what is needed pleases God. That's what we have to understand. There are times that God dealt with the situation, the frustrating people. There are times that God did not deal with it. And God chose to overlook it to have them grow. You will find that there is a mixture of times that sometimes you deal with the people that are frustrating you and sometimes you do not deal with the people that are frustrating you. And you have to understand where God is going, what God is doing, and get a hold of God's thing because sometimes we cannot deal with them out of our own plans and sometimes we can deal with them out of our own plans. Sometimes we can be like Moses and strike the rock. And sometimes we can just bypass situations altogether. If you respond out of anger, folks, it is not likely to please God. You've got to make sure do not respond out of anger. Moses, when he struck the rock, was, was built up from frustration, but he was angry. If you generally respond out of being anger, being angry with frustrating people, more than likely, you will pick the wrong choice. Even if you hit the wrong choice, you're probably going to do it in the wrong way. It's not going to go so well. Respond out of purpose. You're likely to please God. Respond out of anger. Not likely to please God. But respond out of purpose and you're likely to please God. Moses, as long as he continued to stay in that area of purpose, he was able to deal with the frustrating situations in the right way. Jesus, he stayed with the purpose of what God had. He was able to deal with the frustrating people that were in his life in the right way. There are frustrating people that are in your life. Their presence does not mean you are missing it. The fact that people can frustrate you doesn't mean that you are missing it. But how you deal with them is real important as far as how you're pleasing God or not. There are some times you need to just look the other way and bypass it and deal with it down the road. Give them a chance to overcome it. And there are some times you need to deal with it. And you've got to tap into the wisdom of God. You don't, you don't just tap this into with your with the people around you. Also, family, kids, all that sort of stuff. It all works the same way. Pray and ask God for wisdom. God, is this something I should deal with now or is this something I let go? Listen to God. He'll help you out with that. Would you all stand up? Glory to God. Father, we thank you. We give you the praise and the glory. We know that there are frustrating people all around us. Sometimes we think there's something wrong with us because these people frustrate us. And sometimes there is something wrong with us. Sometimes we have some of the wrong attitudes and that's why the frustration comes in. But Father, we can have the right attitude and the right purpose and still find ourselves frustrated because people are standing in the way of getting what you want done. Standing in the way of moving on in their lives and accomplishing the things you have for them. But Father, help us to stay on purpose and not get wrapped up with the anger that can be so associated with frustration. To stay on purpose and to respond out of that. To know when you say, you know what, deal with this one. No, no, don't deal with this one. Hold this one back. 
No matter what we do, Father, we know we're going to make somebody angry. But as long as we are pleasing to You, it's a whole lot easier to handle. Moses continually made people angry the way that he did things. Jesus made people angry. But they both were doing things that were right. Thank You, Father, for the help that You give us and the wisdom to discern. For all wisdom comes from You. Thank you for it. We give you praise and glory in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.